This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. The Lord be with you. Let's try it again. The Lord be with you. That's better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word um, through which we know you. We know that we can only know you through you and through the words that you have given us to know you. So we pray that you would write your words upon our hearts, write your law, your teaching upon our hearts that we might know you and that we might love you and that we might serve you. We pray your blessing upon this time as we open your word together. Amen. So um, in the, the last time we met, um, I, I kind of talked about one means of kind of uh, grabbing hold of the Old Testament, opening it up profitably, was to look at it through different lenses, lenses that kind of um, find their culmination in Jesus Christ, uh, lenses which help us to see Christ as the scope or the meaning of the whole of the scriptures. Uh, so the principal way, I, I mentioned this last time, the principal way that the Old Testament proclaims Christ is not through prophecy. I mean, it does do that, right? It does, does prophesy Christ. But that's actually not the chief way that we learn about Christ in the Old Testament. It's primarily through the themes and the types which run from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? They, they have their kind of anticipatory promise or initial um, instantiation in the Old Testament, and they find their culmination um, in Jesus, so I mentioned uh, two fruitful ones to explore in the last session. Um, the first one was temple, and the second one was land or home. Uh, and I, I said that these are particularly fruitful because they correspond to the offices that Christ bears on our, on our behalf, uh, first of priest and then of king. And I ran out of time to talk about the last one, uh, which is what I'm, I'm going to start with today. Um, the, the third one that I wanted to talk about was Torah or teaching. Um, Torah can also be translated law, but I think it's better translated as teaching. Um, and this one corresponds to Christ's office as prophet. So Christ has, you know, uh, is historically understood to have three offices that he bears on our behalf, which is prophet, priest, and king. So these three lenses kind of correspond to those three different offices. That's why I think they're particularly fruitful. So, um, yeah, so I want to start there today to talk about, you know, how do we read uh, the, the Old Testament as giving us a lens, the lens of Torah or teaching? And I kind of need to be brief on this because of time. Uh, but I do think it's critical for us to understand what it means. What, is it, what does it mean that Jesus is a prophet on our behalf? And what, uh, how, do we, how do we see the meaning of his, um, his vocation as prophet uh, given to us in the Old Testament? So a prophet, and, and to put it in the basic terms of the Old Testament, is one who truly speaks and interprets the word of God to the people of God. Okay, I'll say that again is someone who truly speaks and interprets the word of God to the people of God. Now that, has, that can have a future orientation, and it does at many points in the Old Testament, but it, it also has a present orientation, right? It's a, um, I forget who said this, I think it might be Ben Witherington. He said a prophet is one who both foretells and forth tells. Okay, so there is a foretelling aspect, a future orientation to this. Here's what's going to happen, um, but also a foretelling aspect, telling the truth about what is going on right now, right? Actually interpreting kind of the signs of the times, interpreting, um, interpreting that sort of reigning ideology and its, and its, uh, its judgment actually in the, in the plan of God. Um, so 
um, prophet, again, is one who truly speaks and interprets the word of God to the people of God. So there's, there's actually nothing worse in scripture than, than being a false prophet, right? To be a true prophet is an extremely good thing. To be a false prophet is about the worst thing one can be. Uh, because false prophets, by telling lies about God and his purposes, actually lead people to death and destruction. So in fact, uh, in Isaiah, there's this kind of striking imagery that's given about the false prophets. It says that they've set up a covenant with death among the people rather than a covenant with Yahweh, a covenant with death. Um, so chapter 28 says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. You boast, we have entered into a covenant with death. With the realm of the dead, we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So then Isaiah then announces the word of God over against that falsehood, that covenant with death. It says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. You know, plumb is like when a, when a wall is not leaning one way or the other, right? So justice is the measuring line and righteousness is the plumb line. Hail will sweep away your refuge, the lie, and water will overflow your hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. Because it's destructive. Because it destroys people, actually. It leads them down to death. It's actually cruel to be uh, invested in this covenant with death, invested in this falsehood. So your agreement with the realm of the dead will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge sweeps by, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it comes, it will carry you away. Morning after morning, by day and by night, it will sweep through. So to lie about God is actually to unleash death upon the people of God and enter into covenant with God's greatest enemy. In fact, the last enemy which will be destroyed. And so God's judgment comes against lies, not because God is angry or, or cruel in some way, but in fact the opposite, right? He is righteous, he is deeply loving, and he refuses to have anything to do with that which destroys his people and his creation. So the word of God is how the people of God live and thrive, it is the primary means of our flourishing and lies the primary means of our destruction and our devastation. So we saw this already last time when we discussed kingship and home. Um, without wisdom and without the precepts that lead to wisdom, we cannot flourish and our lives are out of joints. The word of God is actually more important than food. That's what the Old Testament tells us throughout. In fact, the word of God is our spiritual food. It is the means by which we are able to stand spiritually. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses declares, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord your God, uh, sorry, the, sorry, the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where else have we heard that? Somewhere. Where, though? Jesus. Where does he say it? You remember? When he's being tempted in the wilderness, right? Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he's tempted, Right? And it's like Satan comes to him and says, hey, if you want to, and you know you have the power to do this, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus quotes this passage back to Satan so as to say, truth, the truth of the words of God are actually the, the, subs, the sustenance uh, of, the, of the people of God. Um, to, in, to follow 
to follow the commands of the Lord and to know what actually um, are those commands, right? What, what actually is the wisdom of God um, is how human beings flourish. And that's, that goes all the way back to, um, to the foundations of the covenant, right? I mean, we, we can think of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy as law books, and some agree they are, right? They do provide laws for the social order of the people of Israel, but they are preeminently wisdom books. They're books that say, if you go down this path, it's a path of wisdom and flourishing in life. If you go down this path, it's a path of foolishness and death and idolatry, adultery, and murder, and you'll destroy yourselves, you'll destroy the land, and then the Lord will in turn destroy you because you won't tolerate um, his creation being defaced and destroyed in that way. So they are, they are wisdom books primarily. So, um, all right. so the, the prophet Amos actually tells us that there's no greater calamity for a people than a famine in the word of God. When that happens, when the word of God dries up, there's, there's a, a cessation of illumination. The people no longer know how to see and interpret the word, word around them, and they begin to stagger and to give themselves to death because they no, they, no, they no longer know how to flourish. So here's what Amos says. He says, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like morning for an only son and, and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Do you understand what Amos is saying at the beginning of this passage is not actually talking about a literal darkening of the sun and the stars of the sky. It's a darkening of the illumination of the people. They will no longer be able to see and interpret what's actually true so that they begin to stagger and to do that which causes devastation and death. So whenever the people of God no longer hear the word of God, there's a famine, there's a famine, right? A famine in the word of God. And in that time, false prophets abound, liars who tell people exactly what they want to hear about the word of God. And so we need to listen to instruction, to the word of God as it is interpreted through Christ himself. Because when Jesus describes his ministry, he says not only that the law and the prophets point forward to him, right? He says that in Luke chapter 24. But in Matthew 5, he also says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are, those are strident words that Jesus utters. He says, I'm not, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm coming actually to strengthen the law in your hearts. I'm coming to write the law upon your hearts because the law is spiritual. So it's important for us to, to, to understand this because I think there can be a kind, there's like a thread of teaching in the Reformation traditions that wants to set the work of Christ over against the law. It's not true. Christ comes to fulfill the law, to deepen the law. And actually, and this is important to say as well, I mean, and I think this is the thread of truth that goes through the Reformation tradition, to forgive us when we fail to keep the law, right? Um, so, he comes not so that the law will disappear, but rather he comes so that the law may be deepened within us so that we may understand its true intention. 
The law is spiritual, Paul says in Romans 7.14, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. We are, we are locked into sin along with Israel and along with all the generations that come from Adam. All of us are bound together in this common mass of humanity that is sold in slavery to sin. The law requires of us a heavenly purity and obedience which is beyond our grasp. Jesus comes in order to fulfill the law, that in him we might also be conformed to the law. How does he do that? In what way does Jesus enable that? Number one, what I just said, forgiveness. There is forgiveness in Christ. But number two, he does this by achieving victory over that which makes it impossible for us to be conformed to the pattern of the law. By conquering sin, death, and the devil, and then by ascending into heaven so that he might present to he might he might be present to us through his Holy Spirit and in a deeper and more interior way, teach us and instruct us, write that law upon our hearts, that it might be what we desire. And so then through Christ's faithfulness, we are able to stand before the Father as his brothers and sisters, and through his Holy Spirit, we are able to begin to obey the spiritual meaning of the law. So again, the critical point that I want to stress here is it's not that Christ comes to to, to disavow the law or to do away with it. He comes to deepen it, to, sh- to, point, it, to point us to its true intention. And there is actually a, an easy way to summarize what the intention of the law is. What is it? It's like two sentences. We say it every Sunday. Louder, louder, go ahead. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And strength, yes. And your... And your neighbor is yourself. That's right. Jesus, that's a direct quotation from Jesus, right? He's asked to summarize the law, and he says that. He says those two, those two sentences. Go ahead, Barb. We're defining all of these laws that they're in their own way. We're not bypassing them. We're pointing to the true intention of them. As they are fulfilled in Christ, they mean these things. They come, they come to, what, what, is, what is brought to light is their pedagogical function. They're, mean, they're, they're meant to instruct us about what God's intention is, what his character is, what his relationship to humanity is. So I'll, I'll get into this in just a minute because I am going to talk a little bit. I mean, I'll give you some examples from the law itself, right? The, the, the actual command structure of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, but it's important to note this. When, when the term law is used in, in the New Testament, it can be used in one of two ways. One is that whole body of, of commandments, um, which are understood actually to be, to be abrogated for Gentiles. Uh, circumcision is no longer required for Gentiles. Um, you know, uh, the, the whole structure of purity laws is no longer required for Gentiles. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the message of Acts 15. But that's actually not an abrogation of the law. It's a return to the law's true intention. Because if you look at Acts 15, for example, okay, this is an important, this is an important thing to note. Like, I've heard recently a couple of sermons on this, and I'm like, that's just terrible exegesis. It's basically like they, they understand, oh, like, it doesn't really matter what you do anymore, right? The, the law is, like, completely abrogated for Gentiles, so you just kind of do whatever you want, except for these random things that we don't, we don't really have to do anymore, right? Um, but actually, the instructions that are given to the Gentiles are the same instructions that are given to Noah when he gets off the ark. This is the Noahide law, actually, uh, that, that the Lord puts into place. So it actually goes back behind 
the, the covenant given, given with Israel to point to the true intention of the law in the same way that Paul does with Abraham, right? Paul, Paul looks back to Abraham as the person who actually fulfills the law through faith because that's what the law is finally about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind, and strength. Right? So it's, I, I don't think it's, an, it's a narrowing or a truncation of the law. It's an intensification of the law by saying these commandments were always meant to orient the hearts of the people toward these two things that Jesus says are the, the sort of central motifs of what the law is about. Is that, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's why it says the law is spiritual. It's, not, it's actually not uh, carnal in that sense. It's, it's not meant to produce a nation anymore. It's done that. And now its point is to, is to instruct us in, the, in what God desires for humanity. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Yeah. But he corrects them, right? I mean, when he says, when, when he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law, he's addressing exactly that, right? That, exactly that possible misinterpretation. And I mean, it's the same thing that Paul does. He says, hey, now that grace has come, does that mean that we need to stop obeying? By no means, right? We, we must obey the law, but un, the law understood as spiritual. So, yeah. Okay. Um, where was I here? No, it's okay. It's okay. Um, all right. Yeah. So what I was saying is that through the faithfulness of Jesus, through the faithfulness of the Messiah, and this is Paul's language in Romans chapter three, through the faithfulness of the Messiah. And actually, I think this is an important point. Some of translations of Romans three say through faith in Christ. That's actually not what it says. It says through the faithfulness of the Messiah. Okay. So insofar as we are united and stand in Christ, and participate in the righteousness that he has, we are able likewise to be conformed to that righteousness so that God's justice in us becomes a perfecting justice. It's a perfecting righteousness that transforms us and conforms us to the image of Christ. Okay? So, so insofar as we belong to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are also able to begin to obey the spiritual meaning of the law. And that word Paul says in Romans 10 is not far off. It is very near you so that you may call upon Jesus and be saved, be forgiven, and be illuminated. This is not an untethered, subjective illumination, but one that comes through the study and meditation on the scriptures, on the words of God, through its fulfillment in Christ, right? As interpreted by its fulfillment in Christ. So Christ and his apostles teach us how we're meant to read the Torah, the teaching, right? The, 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 the word of God itself. And Paul goes on to say that this illumination will not just merely be an interior transformation, but that it'll flow, forward, it'll flow forth from us in a productive kind of cleansing, a cleansing of our actions, a cleansing of our community. So he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. So it transforms us from the inside out. It's, it begins in the heart, but then it flows out from the heart into our actions, into our neighborhoods. That's what grace does. Grace works, right? Um, just as James tells us, um, I offer you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. By the way, when Israel is commanded to sacrifice, that's the sacrifice that is commanded. It's a living sacrifice, a presentation of Israel itself to God. That's the sacrifice they're meant to offer, right? A sacrifice to themselves. The animal sacrifices were instituted because Israel could not do that. So they were permitted to substitute to come into the presence of God. 
But they were always meant to be living sacrifices. So Paul, again, is returning us to that foundational meaning of the law. What were we meant to do? Offer ourselves. So that's what we must do. Offer a living sacrifice. Our bodies is a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul then goes on, in, uh, in, in later in Romans, to tell us what this progressive purification of our heart will look like. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Listen, it goes on. He goes on, but listen, all of these things, they're not meant to, to be like this strenuous bar that's set before us to say, hey, like if you actually love God, here's how you'll act. He's saying, this is what the grace of God does when it begins to cleanse you. You begin to see it pour out in this way. And it's like second nature. You can't help but do it when the love of God has so captured your heart, which is why Paul says that this transformation, this union with Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is the most central, critical, and important thing in the Christian life. That's why the sacraments matter. That's why faith matters. That's why meditation upon the Word of God matters. Because all of those things are the handholds, as it were, for us to grab hold of this grace which transforms us and then sends us out into the world doing all of these things, right? And when that happens, there's this utter transformation in the city, right? Everyone around us begins to say, like, who are those people? Like, how are they possibly acting like this? They don't look anything like the culture of violence and death that we inhabit on a day-to-day -day basis. And it becomes attractive. That's what evangelism actually is, right? I mean, evangelism is not some kind of like hucksterish program for like selling somebody, selling somebody something that they don't actually want, right? It's like, hey, your life becomes this transformative beacon. And it's not your life as an individual. It's our life as a community because we're doing all of this together right? So our life as a community becomes attractive and beautiful so that people become attracted by it and they begin to ask those questions, right? There's an anticipation of the message that we receive because they, they see it embodied. They see it enfleshed, okay? So this, this is the fruit of the teaching of God. It's Christ's prophetic witness in us through the Holy Spirit, and it's productive, bringing in a harvest in our lives and among the nations, 30, 60, and even 100-fold what is sown, as Matthew 13 says. Okay, any questions about any of that? Jesus as, uh, as prophet, uh, his, the, the word of God being read as kind of uh, culminating in him uh, and it taking deep root in our hearts so that there's not a famine of the word, there's actually this abundance of the word in our hearts. Any, anything about that? Any questions? Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I get it.
It's a great question, Barb. The question, uh, so just to repeat for the podcast, the question is, okay, if all this is true about the power of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the Word taking deep root in us and grace getting inside us, grabbing hold of us and p- pushing us out into the world, like, how did all that get lost? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a hard story to tell but, because it's different in every culture. But I think I will speak to the American context um, because it's, it's one, you know, that has, has I've been formed in and know something about. Um, there is this challenge in 19th century America as America expands into the frontier of, let's just call it anti-intellectualism, okay? There's a profound um, winnowing of the, of the place of reason in the Christian life and especially of the place of the tradition of interpreting the scriptures in the Christian, in the Christian church. So, you know, there's a, there's a group of, of Christians called the, um, the uh, Campbellites, okay? And, they, and they're like part of this restoration movement. And the, the idea is to get back to the primitive apostles, the primitive faith of the apostles. So one of them, a guy named Alexander Campbell, I, I use this kind of sentence a lot because I feel to me it's like a stand-in for the entire 19th century. So I'm not necessarily throwing Alexander Campbell under the bus as much as I'm letting him stand for an entire way of interpreting the scriptures. But he says, I endeavored to read the Bible as if no one ever read it before me. And to me, like, that's a recipe for reading it wrongly, right? And I still see, like, when I, whenever I see progressive evangelicals reading the Bible, I see it in this way. So it's like they, they've tried to take an opposite tack to fundamentalists, but they've repeated the same patterns of interpretation. It's like the way forward is through the, through the, like the, the history of the church, right? It's, it, you have to go deeper and further back in history in order to actually be rooted to be able to read the scriptures appropriately. So I think this, this sense of, okay, like, you know, if you're a Christian, you do X, Y, and Z, comes from a very, you know, I would say naive way of reading the scriptures and a way of reading the scriptures that actually rips them up into little bits instead of letting them culminate in Jesus. Uh, and that, that's like too generalized and too simple. I mean, there's actually a lengthy history here, and there's other reasons for it, but that's one that I would kind of grab hold of and say that's, a, that's kind of a central pillar. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Any other questions about... I think it's also... Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that's right. And so just to summarize for the podcast, there's, a, there's also this element of the confusion with Christianity, with capitalism. And so like the, the confusion of what actually is Christianity with what works, so what gets people in the door, that kind of thing. Um, I think that's totally right. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's actually a lot to say about that. And it feels like we could take uh, maybe another session and like think about all the ways in which Amer- American, American Christianity has been deformed by a kind of intermeshment or um, entwining with some of the American story, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, another thing that, that stands out to me is just like the legacy of Christendom, right? Um, and, and in America, it's a cultural Christendom. Um, there's a 19th century uh, church historian named Philip Schaff, who is really potent historian in many ways, but he wrote a book, like he was actually from Germany, and he, um, had, he received a call from Mercersburg Seminary in Pennsylvania. And uh, when he came over, he was so impressed by the American way of doing things. He wrote this book called America. And it was basically like this encomium, this like celebration of American Christianity. And it's like, hey, the people aren't ruled in their hearts by the state. They're ruled in their hearts by Christ alone. And it's like it produces a kind of Christendom that emerges from the heart rather than, um, th- rather than from laws. And it's like, no, I- I'm not sure you were reading that entirely rightly. It's maybe you had some, you know, stars in your eyes about it. But, but I think that, that piece of like the, the, the anxiety for influence, the anxiety for maintaining a kind of, you know, cultural dominion um, where, like, you know, you have to kind of adjust um, actually what you're, what you're offering in terms of the gospel uh, so that people will accept it. Like, that, that's another element, I think. But anyway, so yeah, all really helpful, helpful stuff. Yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, First Corinthians, right? I mean, yeah. So uh, Lynn's point is the um, that anytime uh, culturally we separate intellectual knowledge from obedience, from the empowering effect of the Holy Spirit in us, uh, we're going to end up like diverging in some way from the gospel, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, okay, let me let me um, let me go back to uh, where I was because I, I I think. What I, what I did was to, uh, to give kind of three lenses, just to rehearse where we've been. I gave kind of three lenses through which to read the Old Testament profitably. And now I just like, I, I think it's important that we go through in brief compass what actually happens in the history of Israel. And I'm going to try to do it as, as succinctly as possible. I can't do it as well as Paul does in our passage from this Sunday, though. Man, it's really great. It's like one of his sermons, and he's like, he's in Jerusalem, and he's, oh no, he's in Perga. And he says, he says he basically, here's the story of the gospel in like, Five verses. It's pretty amazing. Um, so listen out for that on Sunday. But um, I want to start where Israel is entering into the promised land. And the idea 
in this, this movement from Egypt to the promised land is that they will have no king except for the Lord God. God himself will be their king, right? They will not have a king like the nations, but they'll be set apart from the nations by the fact that they have no king except for God. Um, so in the Psalms, there's this consistent refrain, the Lord is king, right? So no matter who's on the throne, the Lord is king. No matter who's on the throne of the nations, no matter who's on the throne of Israel, like the Lord is king. Um, so, it, you know, for example, in 47 and 93, and then in our own tradition, we have Psalm 95, the Venite, which we say every single day in morning prayer, if you do the daily office, which I highly encourage, by the way. Um, I'll just take a little sidebar here and, and just say, in the Anglican tradition, we have what's called a rule of life. And that rule of life, that word rule is not like a law. It's, it comes from the Latin word regula, which is the same word we get the word regulate from. So this is a way of ordering our time and our energies so that we choose that which is pleasing to God, right, consistently. And we, we intentionally, you know, uh, dispose our activities and our, and our thoughts around that. Um, and so that, that rule of life consists of three things. It's, it's, it's participation in weekly communion. It's the daily office and it's private devotions, and that's very broad. So it can include everything from, you know, colloquy, which means, you know, the kinds of, you know, verbal prayer that we do with God. Uh, it can include meditation on the scriptures. It can include things like fasting and giving our money away. All of those private devotions are kind of within that, like, that last, that last term. But so the daily office is a really critical feature of our tradition, and the daily office extends the corporate prayer that we pray on Sunday into our daily life. Okay, it floods our whole daily life with scriptures because there's there's like readings of scripture that go with each office, right? And we have a daily office lectionary that gives us that. So I'm just making a plug for the daily office because it's incredibly important, rich thing in our tradition that we that we um, neglect. I think uh, to our it's not to our peril necessarily, but it's it's at least to our like um, to to the, the the deficit of our faith, I guess so I would say. Uh, so anyway, the Venite, Psalm 95, expresses his conviction um, in morning prayer. It says, The Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the caverns of the earth, and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have molded the dry land. O come, let us bow down and kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and with righteousness to judge the world and the peoples in his faithfulness, right? That's the kingship of God being expressed. And Israel proclaimed that day in and day out in these Psalms. The Lord is king. The Lord was meant to be king. So Oliver O'Donovan, who is um, really challenging to understand, he's about in the same league as Balthazar, um, but he, he wrote this profound book on political theology. And he says, look, when you look at this cry, Yahweh Malik, the Lord is king in Hebrew, it carries with it three kinds of associations. In the first place, he says, it offers geophysical reassurance about the stability of the natural order, right? The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands have molded the dry land. They are stable because the Lord made them and sustained them. In the second place, it offers reassurance about the, sorry, in the second place, it offers a reassurance about the international political order, that the God of Israel was in control of the restless turbulence of the nations and their tutelary deities and could safeguard his people. So think about Isaiah chapter 12, right? I mean, the Assyrians are coming. Isaiah says that. Or, sorry, Isaiah chapter 8. The Assyrians are coming, and, uh, and they're going to take everything over, right? But as soon as their time is over, the Lord God will just, like, shut them down. It's over, no matter how strong they are. Just like in Deuteronomy chapter 9, the Lord says, hey, the time of the Anakim, these giants who live in the promised land, is over. 
They're cruel. They're powerful warriors. They're giants, literally, right? Like living in the land. And their time is over. They've had 400 years since the proclamation of the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 that the Lord has been patient with him. But their time is over. And as soon as it's over, it's really over because the Lord is God. He is king. So the third thing uh, is that it is associated with the ordering of Israel's own social existence by justice and law, ensuring the protection of the oppressed and the vulnerable. Now, this is a critical piece because actually, so you have these first two associations, and because it has these first two associations, it can have this third. Because the Lord is your protector, now order your social life completely in obedience to him in accordance with these laws so that you can be a nation that is a, an elect nation among the nations for the sake of the salvation of the nations. as a strong instrumental component to the actual uh, Uh, statutes that Israel has that order its common life in such a way, if they obey them, right, that the nations will look at what they're doing and say, who has a God like this that's given these kinds of laws, that serves as this kind of king, that offers this kind of, like, um, unfathomable, invincible protection, right? I mean, it's super clear all the way throughout the scriptures that this is God's intention. I mean, just look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way the Lord, Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So the whole point of the instantiation of this whole body of statutes is that the nations might essentially look at Israel and become jealous that they might be gathered in as well. So the whole point of Israel's election is instrumental. It's always for the purpose of God's salvation to be extended to the nations. They're set in the middle. They were drawn from the nations. They were set in the middle of the nations in order to draw the nations to God. So now I just want to say to be clear that the laws that are given to Israel, we would not regard as just laws today, right? I mean, that's, I think, straightforwardly the case. Um, We would not want to order ourselves by these laws today. But I want to submit that the only reason that we have the ability to stand in judgment of the justice of these laws is because these laws were given in the first place. Right, to bring us, to, to elevate our minds, ennoble our minds so that we could see the character of God and actually understand the dignity of all people through his, through the, through his, his uh, character, through his purposes for humanity. And the, law, the giving of these concrete sets of laws are part of that. We would not want to order ourselves by them today, but we need to understand in the context of the ancient Near Eastern societies, that in which Israel was set, these laws were unfathomably fairer and more just by comparison. And they profoundly privileged the most vulnerable in the society, in the Israelite society, in a way that no other civilization in that time period would, would, would have done. In fact, in other civilizations interpreted vulnerability and weakness as an excuse to pile on, right? Of course you take advantage of those who are more vulnerable than you. That's how you show your strength, and that's how you stay on top. That's how every other civilization in the history of the world has thought, right? That's how the Mesopotamians thought. That's how the Greeks thought. That's how the Romans thought. Everybody thought that way. So for Israel to come and say, actually, no, like we're going to take care of the poor. We're going to take care of women. We're going to take care of the sojourner and the alien and the stranger. We're going to take care of the Levites who have no inheritance of their own. We're going to take care of... um, 
we're going to take care of slaves. That's a critical piece, right? Because in the ancient world, to be a slave is to have zero rights. You have no identity outside what your master imposes upon you, right? You are chattel. You have the, your master has sexual rights over you. Your master has, has, uh, has complete mastery over your progeny, like over whether or not you're able to get married, whether or not you're able to stay with your wife. That's entirely the decision of your master. Um, so in addressing each of these things, the law of Israel uh, is, is, uh, is, is having this pedagogical effect upon the minds of the Israelites, ennobling them so that they can see what the Lord God is really like, that he's not like the cruel gods of the nations. So again, there are laws that they could understand in comparison and contrast with the laws of Egypt from which they came and the laws of the surrounding nations. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. He says, the law, the law was our guardian until Christ came. What that means is the law was our pedagogue. That's literally the word that's used, the pedagogue, our tutor, our instructor until Christ came. Right? So the, the effect of the law is to ennoble the mind and to elevate the heart right? so that, it, so that it, the people can come to understand who God is. And this goes all the way back to that first session. Remember I said the Israelites know God first as Savior and Deliverer before they know him as Creator, right? So part of what the law is intended to do is to show the Israelites, to convince them of what God's character actually is. Okay, um, any, any, any questions about any of that, Barb? Go ahead. That's right. To see the picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I think there are a couple of a couple of ways of approaching it. So number one, um, the first point that I made about this, which is which is that we would not want to order ourselves by these laws today, and we're not meant to actually. Um, they had their place and their time in a specific cultural moment, and they have been surpassed actually, uh, and and it's clear they've been surpassed because God allowed them to be destroyed, right? Uh, to the extent that they, st that they remain important now, they, show they are important because they show us the character of God. And the way they show us the character of God is by being interpreted through Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is. So I would never introduce somebody who is trying to come to the faith by saying, hey, why don't you read Exodus and like, compare it with Mesopotamian laws and so you can see how much more just they are, right? The Code of Hammurabi to, you know, to show how much more just it is than that. You know what I'm saying? Like that's you go to the Gospels. Easy, that's easy enough to do. Yeah. I mean, but, but the stumbling block is yeah. not that. No, I get it. It's the fact that whole cultures in the Old Testament mm -hmm. were mandated. 
totally. Yeah. Number one, that's actually not true. They were commanded to be driven out of the promised land. That, that the penalty for, uh, for, for the violation of, of these laws that God has established over the course of millennia is to be driven out of the land. That's the command. And when they refuse to be driven out of the land, they're put, the, they put to the ban. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it easier because the ban is still there. But the command is, I think it's important to point this out, the command is ejection. The command is eviction. Um, and I, I, I did some work on this last time, we, last time we met. I won't go back through all of that right now. There actually are ways of like, looking closely at the text and understanding what the text is saying in context that, uh, that help us to get a grip on, what, on how bad is it actually, right? How bad is it actually what God is commanding? Um, but the second thing I think it's important to note is like we, it, we, what, we, what we're doing when we're reading the text in that way is we're abstracting from the actual character of these civilizations. Like what actually were these civilizations like? Did they deserve to be put into the ground as it were? Um, and I think that's a, that's a worthwhile question to ask. When we look at the character of these civilizations, they were extraordinarily cruel and evil civilizations. You know, um, the word that is translated giant in the Old Testament, uh, Nephilim or um, there's Rephaim is also translated giant. Both of them mean tall, but they mostly mean cruel and tyrannical and oppressive, right? So, um, you know, for instance, like Og of Bashan in Deuteronomy chapter two is called a giant, but it's like his the description of him is a cruel tyrant, someone who proceeds by like bloodthirsty means, right? So when we look at, you know, empires like Assyria, like I, I, I'm always trying to come up with like a good analogy for Assyria um, because Assyria was the most terrifying empire in the, in the ancient world. Um, like, so just, just to give you a, a, a kind of comparison, um, the Hittites were the first major 10th century empire and uh, they created these covenants with vassal states, right? And all of the covenants in the Old Testament are, not the, all the covenants, but the, the um, covenants with the Israelites at Sinai are patterned off the Hittite covenants. And they have this particular kind of structure. One is a preamble where it's like, here's the character of the king. Here's all the things the king has done for you. Here's, here's why you should obey the king, because the king loves you so much. Now obey this, and here are the benefits that are going to come from it, and here's like what's going to happen if you don't do it, okay? You look at the Assyrian covenant treaties that come two centuries later, it's none of that. It's basically like, the Assyrians will rip you a new one if you don't obey, will rape all of your women, kill all of your children, and like, pour, like drink all the blood. Like, that's what we'll do. And there's like this political propaganda that goes with it. It's like, that looks like, you know, a horror movie. It's like, you know, heads being cut off and like literally like blood being drunk from the victims and stuff like this. So it's like, are there actual like civilizations that where, wherein it's like, no, that's an appropriate, that's an appropriate approach, right? I mean, I think it's a question that's worth asking. Now, some people are just like, it feels like they're ideologically indisposed to acknowledge that that could ever be the case. And I don't think it's possible to argue with them in this way. But I think as Christians, it's worth, it's worth our consideration that if God has said this is, this is the case, that in some cases it might be warranted. All right. Anybody else? All right. So um, I'll just give you one example um, from the law, which I think is important uh, and that's the case of slavery, right? So slavery is often pointed to as one example of like how, you know, look, God is not just. He allowed the ownership of one person by another. Um, and that's, that's true. I mean, from our vantage in history, we can now look back and say like, no, we would never want to order ourselves that way. And again, we have to look at 
how was Israelite slavery configured vis-a-vis -vis the other civilizations around it? So it wasn't abolished, but it was highly curtailed. So the norm, as I've already said, is chattel slavery, which actually, uh, so if you look at the history of American slavery, it looks like the history of the civilizations that Israel was brought out of, right? It's the kind of slavery that was imposed upon the Hebrews by the Egyptians. Um, but the, the, the slavery that was permitted in Israelite society was nothing like that. It wasn't chattel slavery. Um, if you look at the three kind of big passages about ordering of slavery, it's, it's Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15. So, yeah, Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15. So it says, if you buy a Hebrew slave, that will be because this person has gotten themselves into, into very serious debt, right? And as the only way for them to get out is for them to work. Uh, so you can buy a Hebrew slave under those conditions. Um, but if you do that, that person is only obligated to serve for six years and can go out the seventh, has that option. In Deuteronomy 15 and Leviticus 25 actually go on to describe the slave as your brother, which that already changes the nature of this relationship, right? If the, if the slave is your brother, that means there are certain things you cannot do to this slave. Deuteronomy 15 expands on the command in Exodus 21 making it clear that the slave is not only to be freed after the seventh year, but that provision is to be made for him or her. It says, if a fellow Hebrew, man or woman, is sold to you, you shall serve, he, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall set him free. When you set him free, do not let him go empty-handed. Furnish him out of the flock, threshing floor, and vat, which the Lord God has blessed you with. Bear in mind that you were slaves in Egypt. So it's like, hey, here's the whole perspective within which you are to understand how slavery is to function. You were slaves in Egypt. Now remember that as you hold slaves, like in what the Lord God did for you. He says, therefore, I enjoin you, um, therefore, I enjoin this commandment upon you today. So this, the scriptures then go on to presuppose that some of these slaves under these conditions might want, to slay, well, might want to stay with their masters. They might want to stay in perpetuity. But that's the decision of the slave, not the master. It's entirely within the volition of the slave. So it says, again, and more importantly, in, in verse 18, when you set him free, and this is Deuteronomy, sorry, verse 18 of Deuteronomy uh, 20, no, 15, when you, set, when you do set him free, do not feel aggrieved, for in the six years that he has, done, he has given you double the service of a hired man. Moreover, the Lord and your God will bless you in all you do. So, so in other words, the, the, the idea that the Israelites are to relieve the slaves, or to relieve the slaves in the seventh year should not create any kind of grievance mentality. Like, I'm losing all of this free labor that I had. No, you had free labor for six years. So now let this person go and be glad that you had that labor. And the Lord of God will bless you if you have that attitude, you maintain that attitude. So the, the slave is actually more like a hired worker uh, and less like chattel. That's the, that's the vision that's being given. Because the Lord cares for the slave in this condition. So he says, uh, you know, in, in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 15, let, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty, guilty of sin. You shall then give him freely, you shall, you shall then give to him freely, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So What's clear from these statutes about slavery is that the Lord cares about the slave. The slave has dignity. The slave has personhood. The slave is the brother of the Israelite who owns this person. It's really critical to acknowledge the differentiation between that and the chattel slavery, which was normative around the world before and after Israel. 
Because only then will we understand what the point of these laws is. It's not to enshrine slavery forever. It's to do the opposite. It's to show the people what the, Lord, what the Lord's uh, countenance is towards those who are enslaved so that then they'll begin to understand things differently. Go ahead. No, there's different laws for non-Hebrew slaves. Yeah, yeah. That's what I wondered. Yeah, absolutely. There's different laws for, for non-Hebrew slaves. The point is that among the people of Israel for whom these laws applied, this is the, this is the normative pattern that's set up. And the, what is modeled in Israel is meant to be what, God's, what God is signaling as uh, his intention for all the nations. Yeah, but what I'm asking yeah. is, did the Israelites have slaves? They totally had slaves from other nations, yeah. Very differently. Yeah, totally, totally differently. I mean, I freely acknowledge that. There's no, like, in other words, what I'm trying to say is this is not, like, again, there's never a um, kind of letting the law off the hook for being less difficult to swallow than it is, right? I mean, because it is. Like, all of, even this, like, I, I want to say, like, even, even this sort of inter, inter-Israelite uh, dynamic is still not something that we would ever want to order our own pattern by, right? our own legal pattern by. But... What is set forth in Israel as a just set of laws is the pattern by which our minds and our hearts are ennobled so that we have come to the place that we are today, actually, where we recognize the dignity of every human being, right? I mean, I think it's, it is, it is the, the pacification process in human history from the, the coming of Jesus Christ to the present day is one of the marvelous feats of history. And it's all because the kingship of Jesus has been extended implicitly. Not everyone who has passed you know, has created constitutions that recognize the dignity of every human being, explicitly acknowledges Jesus. But all of them owe a debt that is inalienable to this pattern of the ennoblement of humanity through the, through the law. Like, that, there's just, there's, it's, it's, a, it's a very evident straight line. And anybody who attempts to secularize that is just lying. Because it's, it's, not, it's not something that we came through just by, you know, the application of, of objective reason to our situation, Right? Because, they, because the Greeks and the Romans also had objective reason, and they didn't come up with that, right? They came up with chattel slavery. That's how they, that's how they reasoned their way to human relationships. So I, I think it's, a, it's an important point to make. It's an important argument to make about the, the history and the, um, the way in which we're able, able to look at the, at the law and judge it. We're only able to judge it on the grounds of the law itself, the influence of the law itself. Yeah, go ahead, Lynn. Yeah. Yeah, these don't change. You know, mm-hmm. Love the Lord, don't get divorced, don't murder people, that sort of thing. But those are kind of the non-negotiables. Yes. Translated then into every circumstance of life and time. Yeah. Is that? I mean, it, it sounds like some of the things <coughs> you're struggling with are um, guidance that God gave. And, and this is the point I think that you know this is righteous God's guidance in the time in which it was given, but it's subject to the yeah. Um, 
Yes and no, I think. So in the history of the, in the, history of the church, uh, I mean, going all the way back to Justin Martyr, who's in the second century, there's a distinction made between moral law and judicial law. Um, so judicial law being the kind of case law that you're describing. So uh, for the podcast, Lynn's question was, is the distinction between apodictic law, which is unchanging kind of Ten Commandments type stuff, uh, which is more like, it's actually, those are less laws than like general principles, right? I mean, they're not like, they're not, they actually, they have to be cashed out in case law. Um, but is the distinction between apodictic law and case law uh, one that helps us with kind of grappling with like the place of the law in the Christian life? And I, and I think yes and no, because I, I, on one hand, this distinction is always made between the moral law, which is unchanging um, and is, uh, is recognizable uh, by, in every human society, um, and the, the particular statutes that Israel was given. Uh, and that's an important thing to note. But at the same time, like Jesus actually does intensify the moral law. Like he says, it's spiritual. And Paul says, it's spiritual. So that which was done to limit the effect or the force of it is actually done away with by Christ and by Paul. Um, so that there actually is a, there's a alteration there too. So it's, it, it's, just, it's a, I think it's a helpful um, like step to, to make, that, make that distinction, um, but it's not sufficient. Necessary, but not sufficient. There we go. That's philosophical conditions. Necessary, not sufficient. Um, okay. Okay. We're probably not going to do discussion again today. Is that okay with everybody? I can stop. I can stop earlier. We're just not going to get as far. Yeah. Yeah. In, in American right. experience. Um, and the difference between that and, of course, uh, slavery. But the thing with slavery, um, in, in from the American and English perspective, is, of course, it's, mixed, it's, it's completely mixed up um, with um, racial mm-hmm. and other characteristics. Yeah. The curse of Ham and whatnot, even though the, cur- the curse of Ham and whatnot, even though the curse was given to Canaan, just, yeah. you know. George Peterson wrote a comparing South African and South African and South American slavery to other forms of, you know, earlier forms of slavery. Yeah. No, it's fair. So um, I, I think it's worth pointing out, too, what does Paul do with these passages? Exodus 21, Leviticus 25. 
and uh, Deuteronomy 15. In Philemon, right? He says, hey, Onesimus, your slave, is your brother. He's explicitly appealing to Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. He's your brother. So therefore, if, you, if you're willing, right, if you're willing, please send him back to me because so he's been of service to me, right? Um, and, you know, he basically pushes him in the direction of manumission. Um, he doesn't have to by law, right, because he's a, you know, probably a Roman citizen or uh, at the very, yeah, probably a Roman citizen because he's, he's a landholder um, and he owns slaves. So he doesn't have to by law, but it's like, that's just what the positive law says. Like, what about the law of Jesus Christ, which binds your heart, right? It requires you to see, again, the law is spiritual. It requires you to see this guy as your brother, and that entails a certain kind of pattern of behavior, probably up to and including manumission after, after seven years, right? I mean, that, that's, um, I, I think that's, that's a critical uh, thing to, and it's a pre, actually, it's a pretty critical case study of how the law is spiritualized in, uh, in the early church. Um, yeah, okay. So let me, let me continue um, with the kind of narration of what happens in Israel. Israel is given the law, and as it enters the promised land, God is to be king over Israel, right? Just as we said. But as the conquest narrative of Joshua gives away to the period uh, of the judges, we find that Israel is not at all ruled in this third way, right? You know, not, not sovereign of the creation order, not sovereign of the international order, but ruled like in the social order of the Israelites, uh, ruling in the social order of the Israelites. Uh, but instead, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's like not a good thing, right? It sounds like a good thing to us, maybe. Not a good thing. Um, it's like, you know, when Assyria is described in the prophets as the great city, that sounds like a good thing. It's actually not a real, it's not a good thing at all. It's like a terrible thing. Um, it means that, like, in this situation, people don't know their left hand from their right. Like, it's a situation where there's a famine in the word of God, and the people stagger and give themselves to death and destruction rather than to life and the, the faithfulness to the covenant. Um, so during this period of, the, period of the judges, it's a really dark time. You know, there's all these terrible stories, right? And the judges themselves are like deplorable characters, right? I mean, Samson being among the worst. Uh, but, but Gideon too, I mean, Gideon's cowardly. And there's just, it's just not, it's like not a good time for Israel. And the narrative transitions then in Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. And the judges have been such a disaster that people ask for a king so they can be like the nations. And again, not a good thing, right? Yahweh is supposed to be king over, the, over, the, over Israel. Um, and it shows, actually, that in asking for a king, they're rejecting the kingship of God. Uh, so here's what it says in uh, 1 Samuel, I think it's 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But, then they said, but when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And then he reminds them, what does it mean to have a king? You want to be like the nations? Here's what it's going to mean. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots, right? They're going to be grunts. They're going to be the infantry. They get smashed by the enemy. 
Some he will assign to be the commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, harlots, right? I mean, that's what it means, whores and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord your God will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then what? We will be like the other nations. We don't want to be distinctive. We don't want to be elect. We want to be just like everybody else. With a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. You know, the Lord gives you what you want, right? Is this what you want? Then you can have it, right? Um, C.S. Lewis has a famous line where he says, there's only like... Finally, two things that the Lord, that, that, that um, two, two final, I forget how he puts it, actually. Hold on. Um, two final postures that one can embody before the Lord, I suppose. There's the, there's, there's the person to who, uh, who, who says to the Lord, your will be done. And there's the person that the Lord says to them, your will be done, right? The Lord lets you have what you want. If you want death and destruction, the Lord will let you go down that path towards death and destruction. Um, and it's clear from this passage that Israelites want to be just like the nations, and so they get a king who's going to be just like the nations. And the whole history from there on in First and Second Samuel and, and then onward into the First and Second Kings is this abysmal history of idolatry, adultery, murder, bloodshed, like terrible uh, defection from the covenant, from the kingship of God. And we already see the failure of the kings in Saul, who does not obey God and is rejected. But God redeems even this unholy desire that people have for kingship by giving them David. And David is an incredibly imperfect man, but it also says he's a man after God's own heart. He's a man after God's own heart in this one way, that his desire is to magnify the kingship of God through his own kingship, right? He, his, his, his desire is that the kingship of God would be lifted up. So David is the author of all of these psalms wherein the kingship of God is lifted up and glorified. And that's the way in which David is a man after God's own heart. And then his kingship becomes the paradigm for Christ's kingship. It becomes sort of like the gold standard in which every other king in Israel is supposed to measure up. It never does. Um, and, and it becomes the pattern by which we understand Christ's kingship. Because Christ's kingship magnifies the kingship of God. In fact, it is identical with the kingship of God. So after David comes Solomon, who is a king at first of great wisdom. Um, it's Solomon, of course, who's privileged to build the first temple. But toward the end of his life, he turns away from that wisdom by intermarrying with the Canaanite tribes around him and then turning to worship their gods. So by the end of Solomon's rule, like he's become a person of great foolishness. This is dramatic reversal. So it's really uh, with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, that things begin to take a turn for the worse. Um, Israel goes to Rehoboam after Solomon dies and indicates that the reign of Solomon perhaps hasn't been so good for Israel. They say, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke you put on us, and we'll serve you. Okay? So Rehoboam answers, go away for three days and then come back to me. And Rehoboam goes and consults with the elders, and they say, if today you'll be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. So the elders say, the elders understand like what, what good kingship would actually be. But he rejects this knowledge, and he, he entrusts himself, it says, to the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. It's never going to be a good sign, right? Um, it's, like, it's like, this is his gang. This is like his posse. Hey, posse, 
what should I do, <laughs> right? And they say, hey, go tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. You know that's not what they said, right? <laughs> my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And Roboam says, yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> I'll say that. And says, so, so the king did not listen to the people, for this event, this turn of events was from the Lord, which is a striking statement, right? That he, that the Lord, this turn of events is from the Lord in the sense that the Lord intended for the kings of Israel to make the people of Israel like the nations around them. So Israel in the north rejects Rehoboam's rule, and Judah, the southern kingdom, is permanently separated thereafter from Israel, which is the northern kingdom. So there's a divided kingdom after Rehoboam. Um, Judah in the south and Israel in the north, right? Um, and, uh, and Jerusalem is in that southern kingdom. Um, so Jerusalem being the heart of Israel is also th the lens through which Israel is interpreted. So whenever the northern kingdom is described, it's always a kingdom that is permanently in rebellion against Israel, the true Israel, Jerusalem. Um, which is not to say that true Israel is guiltless in that respect, right? I mean, like, look at what Rehoboam did. Uh, no, it's like the, the reason for the schism is the evil that was in the kind of true people of God. Um, so the history of the kings thereafter is just a descent into idolatry and adultery and murder, and it makes for unremittingly grim reading with just a handful of exceptions. But even those exceptions are not all that great, right? So the first thing that happens is these kings establish high places, which are centers of worship for gods other than Yahweh, right? There's, there's the Baals, there is Asherahs, there's uh, Molech, the god of the Canaanites, who demands child sacrifice. Israelites start doing all that stuff, right? Um, so there's terrible descent into idolatry. And what follows after it is the conformity of the ethical behavior of the Israelites to that of the nations. They become, they become adulterers and murderers. They become people who, who, uh, who deface the dignity of the poor, right? They begin to crush. Amos' famous expression, right? You grind the faces of the poor. That's what the Israelites start doing, right? Uh, and so as they descend further and further into sin and rebellion against God and Israel's kings look less and less like the kingship of God, you move closer to the curse that's proclaimed when the covenant is given. So Leviticus 18 says, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out just as it vomited out the nations who were before you, right? This goes back to that point that I was making. That command is drive out the nations, right? The land is vomiting them out and you will be the instrument of the land vomiting them out. And, he, and then Moses turns around and says, if you do this, if you act like the nations, the exact same thing is going to happen to you. You yourselves will be vomited out of the land. So the prophets rise in both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to forth tell the truth about who the Israelites have become to the people and to the leaders and to foretell what will happen under those conditions. You continue to go down this path, here's what's going to happen. Amos 2.7. Amos, is a, he's a prophet in the northern kingdom. And uh, that guy's a piece of work, man. He's amazing. Um, but in 2.7, he says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They grind the faces of the poor into the dust and deny justice to the oppressed. Now, you remember when I said the law is given to ennoble the minds and the hearts of the people, the central point of that is God's concern for the vulnerable, for the poor in the land. God cares for those people when no one else will. And so the laws of the people of Israel are designed to, to actually um, create a space for these people to flourish and to have dignity. And, and what Amos is saying is, you've done exactly the opposite of that. 
you grind the faces of the poor into the dust and deny justice to the oppressed. So the people of Israel think they're strong because they have kings like the nations do. And he says, yet I destroyed the Amorites. I, I destroyed the Amorites before you, though they were as tall as cedars and as strong as the oaks, right? Throughout the course of this, this narration of the entry into the promised land, all these nations are incredibly powerful. They have fortified cities, right? They have chariots, they have iron chariots, all the kind of best military technology of the day, right? We have all of this strength, and yet I decimated them. I just, I, I obliterated them before you. Even though they were as tall as the cedars and as strong as the oaks, guess what will happen to you, right? So that's exactly what happens. The northern kingdom is first conquered, and its leaders are brought into exile by the powerful Assyrian Empire. And again, I'm, I'm always on the lookout for, um, for, for good kind of like images for what Assyria is. I kind of described them a little bit earlier. The best one I've come up with so far, but it doesn't work because not everybody has watched the show Firefly. Anybody who's seen the show Firefly? I know you have. You definitely have. You haven't seen Firefly? You've seen Firefly. Okay, so the, the reverse. Remember the reverse? Okay, can you describe the reverse? Do you remember them? Okay, but you know, you know who the reavers are. Describe them. They get on the chef's plate. Don't they eat people? Yeah. They like deface their skin and and they like it's like they it's like raping and pillaging and it's like they're like they're not they're they've like ceased to be human because they're so they they call it like space madness and they, they go crazy and then they anyway so if they if they catch you if the reavers catch you like you will die right but you'll die like the most horrible imaginable death before you know before you actually die and, and I'm like that's the image that I have for the Assyrians but anyway. Y'all gotta watch Firefly. It's a good. It's a, it's a great, It's an amazing show. It's like a spaghetti western set in space. It's amazing. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. This is great. I, I really love this. Uh, I I um I have this kind of like bizarre predilection for horror films. I don't. I should. I shouldn't. I think it's kind of really bad. But like, I actually do really like them. And, um, and I especially love zombie films because I like post-apocalyptic stuff. But like in, in, in the, the zombie genre, there's actually two kinds of zombie films, zombies that kind of like characterize these shows. One is slow zombies. That's The Walking Dead. Slow zombies. And there's fast zombies. So the Assyrians are like the fast zombies. There we go. I'm going to use that from here on. Fast zombies. Yeah. Definitely. No zombies, but, but I do think the Vikings are another, that's another uh, powerful image. I can imagine when they figured out how to navigate west on the sea, and they came down into England, like, the first, the first people to have spotted them would have been absolutely terrified, because they did look like giants. They were, like, a foot taller than the, um, than the Anglo-Saxons, and they were incredibly vicious. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, all right. That was a bit of a distraction, but that's fine. You know, we can, we can do imagery. It's good. Anyway, so uh, this, the, the Northern Kingdom is first conquered, and its leaders are brought in exile by the, by the Assyrian Empire. But again, Isaiah is prophesying the time of the, time of the Assyrians is going to come up, right? I mean, the, the, they are, they are, Isaiah describes them as the rod of Yahweh to punish the nations, right? And then when that time is over, boom, it's done, period. And then Assyria, so at that moment, Assyria is itself decimated by the empire of Babylon, and Babylon takes aim then at the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. And under its king Nebuchadnezzar, the walls of Jerusalem are breached and its leaders are taken into exile. Okay, and that's a terrible, dramatic period in the, in the, at the end of 2 Kings. Um, so the, the once proud nation of Israel is first divided, right, with Rehoboam. And what does Jesus say about a house that's divided? Cannot stand, right? So ultimately it's brought to nothing. 
And in exile, Israel is forced to learn how to worship God in a strange land, right? Like the rest of the nations, Israel has thought of its God as a provincial God. Like, this is the God of Israel, right? Other nations have their gods, but this is the God of Israel. We have an extremely powerful protector God, right? But they don't think of God as a universal God. And so, but the, one of the critical things that the exile does is to expand their scope of, of who God is and what God is capable of. So Psalm 137 um, expresses this deep sorrow and the sense of alienation and like, is it possible that God could take care of us in this distant land, right? By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors had demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. But in exile, they learn that God is not like the gods of the nations. He's a universal God who can be worshipped anywhere. He can care for them even in Babylon. So Jeremiah tells the exiles, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Get ready, because you're not going back. You're going to die there. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Why? Because the Lord, your God, can take care of you there too, just like he took care of you in Israel. Also, and this is critical, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God doesn't just care about the Israelites. He cares about the nations into which the Israelites have been carried into exile. So Daniel and Esther are texts that are written in exile. Possibly Jonah as well. Lee Beach, uh, who's a scholar of these texts, says their advice for exiles, how to remain faithful in a place that doesn't acknowledge God and whose worship and way of life is contrary to everything the Israelites proclaim. These texts show Israel as a creative minority. Um, that's a, a term that was first kind of coined by um, a historian named Arnold Toynbee, but most recently it's been given this kind of new lease on life by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Um, he had a lecture where, he, where he, it's called On Creative Minorities. If you Google that, Jonathan Sachs, Creative Minorities, it'll come up. It's, it's an amazing essay. Um, but these texts, Sachs indicates, say that it is possible to survive in exile with your identity intact, your appetite for life undiminished, while contributing to the wider society and praying to God on its behalf. So this is an idea that's going to go on to have tremendous purchase, both in, among the diaspora Jews and among the early Christians. All of them thought of themselves in the same way. People in exile who were nonetheless making a contribution in every city where they find themselves. By the time of Jesus, there were Jews in every major city in the Mediterranean basin, right? That, were, that lived in these distinctive ways with their hearts that were in alienation from the people around them, but who were nonetheless praying for those people and contributing to the wider society. And that's always actually been the case um, for, for Christians as well. Wherever Christians have gone, they've had the same attitude. First um, Peter presupposes that the church is the people of God that sojourns or that is in exile in every place. The hearts of the people of God are alienated from the peoples around them, but by their actions, they bless and make a contribution and they pray for the world around it. Um, so this, is, this becomes a critical motif during this time of exile, that God is a universal God, he can take care of his people anywhere, and he cares for the nations wherein the people of Israel are set. 
So in Jonah, which I think is a really interesting text, we see that the sovereign Lord cares not only for Israel, but also for those nations that have enslaved it. Nineveh, of course, which is where Jonah is told to go, right, and, and to tell the people to repent, is the capital of where? Assyria, right? Yeah, Assyria, this place that is like terrifying and full of monsters, right? Uh, it's, it's the capital of Assyria, the empire that's conquered and enslaved the Assyrians. And Jonah does what when he hears, you're going to go to Assyria? He's like, heck no. And he gets out of there as soon as he can. But the Lord's like, nope, you're going to go do this, right? And Jonah says, I knew, I knew it. I knew this about you. You're going to tell me to go to the place that is like the chief enemy of my people that have like enslaved like our, my people's daughters and enslaved their sons and put them in, put them, you know, in, in exile. You're going to make me go to these people and tell them to repent and you're going to make them repent. I know you. I know what you're going to do. I'm not going to have anything to do with it, right? And of course, that's exactly what happens, right? What happens at the end of Jonah? Like he proclaims the message kind of like half-heartedly and everyone's like, ah, it freaks out and repents. So of course, this is a, this is a text which is about uh, the, the heart of God for the nations. But the thing is, is that this heart has been proclaimed over and over and over again, both in the covenant itself, but also in the prophets. Um, I, mean, I think there's a remarkable passage in 2 Kings 5, where the Lord commands Elisha to heal Naaman, right, the commander of the armies of Aram. And Naaman the Syrian, right? He's, in, he's another, it's, it, this is connected to the empire, the empire of Assyria. But Aram is kind of a client state within Assyria, but they're the people of Israel, and they've been conducting raids. It says it right before this in the text that, that Naaman has been conducting these raids on the people of Israel and stealing people and subjecting them to slavery. In fact, the person who sends Naaman to Elisha is a young girl that has been kidnapped by Naaman and turned into one of his wives, right? She, she sends him to, to Elisha. Now, can you imagine? Like, what is a, what, what, if you were Elisha, what would you feel like? You're like, there's no way I'm doing this, right? Like, this guy, this guy is, is wicked and evil, and yet he's commanded to heal this man. So it's clear that, that God's heart is for the repentance of these nations. So, okay, so the people have been, uh, the northern kingdom is taken into captivity and, and exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is taken into captivity by the Babylonians who defeated the Assyrians. So you can see there's simultaneously what's happening with Israel and then zoom out a little bit. Here's what's happening with all the nations and the empires of this world. They're raging, they're roiling, right? If you think about Psalm 2, why do the nations rage in vain? Like that's exactly the attitude of, of, uh, of God toward them. They are raging and they're doing it in vain, right? But the Lord controls all of this. He's in command of how all this is shaking out providentially. Um, so in the providence of God, a new kingdom arises, the Persians, and their powerful ruler Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. And he has a religious policy that's fundamentally opposite that of the Babylonians, right? Babylonians take the best and the brightest, move them into exile, try to convert them and assimilate them into the Babylonian way of life. And the posture is you have to be a creative minority. Cyrus is the exact opposite. He says, I'm going to take the best and the brightest. I'm going to send them back to the client states, right? Let them rebuild the walls, rebuild their temples, have their own style of worship, and flourish because that's going to make them better citizens and, more, and give, me, give them greater allegiance to me. Um, so that's what he does. He sends back Ezra and then Nehemiah, and they, and they, they organize the people, and they rebuild the walls, and they try, they try to uh, rebuild the temple, right? Which they do, but it's nothing like the splendor of the original. It is this kind of like, poor substitute for the original. And so the people actually weep when they see it. Uh, it's very clear um, from, this, from this passage, there's great hope that the exile is ending, but this is not it. This isn't the end of the exile. People are still in exile because God's presence isn't in the temple. The temple itself is this kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's this lowly thing. It doesn't look anything like the original. And more importantly, 
Israel has not been regathered to Israel. The, the Jews are the, the massive majority of Jews are still in exile. They're still in the, in the diaspora. Israel has not yet been regathered to Israel, and more importantly, they're still ruled by foreign powers. Right? It's it, they're not ruling themselves. They're not they're not ruled under the kingship of God. They're ruled by Cyrus, a Persian pagan. Right? So no matter how good of a Persian pagan king he is, he's still a Persian pagan king. Um, and so. Among, in Israel and among the Jews that are in the diaspora, the synagogue emerges as this kind of critical space that preserves the teaching and the ethnic distinctiveness of Israel among the nations while they wait for the regathering of Israel back, to, back, back around Jerusalem and in Israel. And so as the Old Testament closes, there's this promise that Israel is going to be restored, right? But it's nothing more than a promise. It hasn't come to fulfillment yet. So um, I think I'm going to stop there because we have to actually be out of here right at 11 because there's a wedding that's happening today. Um, but I'll stop there and maybe take five minutes of questions if there are any, and we'll, we'll move into the intertestamental period and the gospel of Jesus Christ the next time. Hopefully I'll be able to finish it in one go. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah.